Hi, I'm Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Affirmative. Oh, he's definitely an e-ticket. I can't believe all the new gadgets they've got now. For a while, we didn't even have a house phone, not to mention laser discs, high-def TV. You are listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... So you're you're a writer, you're an actor, uh, you're you're a director, you're a photographer. You know, you're, it's like a little movie. Yeah. And there's a formula to it. And after a while, you get into a routine. After three years, when you trust yourself, because there are days when there's no ideas at all, and you can just sit on a couch with a notepad on your lap, and nothing comes, and you fall asleep. Well, you trust yourself to know that next day you'll be that all the stuff that was missing today will come tomorrow. So after three years, you start to trust yourself. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Is there a delay? No, you seem okay. Okay, good. I thought there was no, a no, delay. No, 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 no. Usually you're already breaking up by now. So this is, I think we're good. Okay, good. Okay, I wow. know, this is amazing. <laughs> So, guys, this is our first week where I have the new internet, and it's Woo-hoo. working, and I can't believe it. And I'm, woohoo! No more delay. We talked about this in the past episode. Um, we don't record these chronologically that we release them, so you might it might be confusing, because I was like, next week, we're going to have... Yeah, internet. that was like four weeks ago, I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> so, but now it's here, and there's no delay, and... Also, that doesn't matter to you. So welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at the GBB Podcast, anywhere you can get them in your app. And I had to miss the interview today, wow. last minute, because of some plumbing problems at my house. And it was, Jamie, you told me it was, you were telling it me was all like, about it. It was it like it a Canadian like a love fest, man. It was like, it was the, the one episode you should have been there for. The one time that I'm not there. <laughs> I'm not there. I mean, it. granted, it was no Mr. Tickle or Tickle Trunk or Mr. Whatever, but <laughs> I mean, this was this was Mr. Tickle. <laughs> this was all about the Canada love. <laughs> yeah. What well, did you ask her about Mr. I, dress up? She would have lovingly told I you. I did not. Him. I should have, but I think I erased him from my memory while I was on the phone with her. <laughs> so you talked to Lynn Johnston this week, and I I don't know that there's a. Like I told my mom, even my mom doesn't know yeah. anyone. And I texted her and I was like, we're, we're interviewing Lynn Johnston from, from better or worse. And she, she was just like, I read that. I always read it all the time. Yeah. Your grandmother read it, read that strip yeah. all the time. So I, I don't know. I mean, anyone that was fond of the original, you know, those newspaper comics, yeah. right? Like I, you, you, you know, this comic strip. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, my mom was a super fan of this strip. So, I mean, this strip is as old as I am, you know, putting it out there. I'm 40 or I'm going right. to be 40 in a couple of weeks. So this strip debuted in um, 1979. So it's 40 years old. It ran for 30 years. It, she retired 10 years ago or so. Um, but this was a staple. It was like, you know, through the eighties and nineties, like it was like, Peanuts, Calvin and Hobbes, and for better or for worse, you know, like that was what you read if you turned to the comic strip, the comic page. And my, yeah, so my mom also is a super fan. I saw a couple, geez, this is probably like four or five years ago. I went to Book Expo in New York City, which is the big trade show for new books and everything. And that was, I think, when the last 
um, for better or for worse collection was coming out. And so it, it came out there and she was there signing. And I remember I, I was like, I don't, I don't care who else is here. Like I have to wait in this line and get this signed to my mom. And that's what you know I did. I had it signed to my mom and my mom loved it. Um, but what the, the, the cool thing about the strip is that at least for our family, it mirrored so much of our family. So like right. it started in 79. I was born in 78. My sister was born in 74. So the ages of the kids were kind of where we were. I mean, the, it was gender swap. The older one was a boy and the younger one was a girl. But so that was reversed. But the ages of those kids were kind of the same. And as it went along, when there was a the third little girl who came in, I think 1992, they had a third kid. And that was almost exactly when my my second cousin, my mom's niece was uh, or niece's daughter was born. So it's like we had a new kid at the exact same time that this family had a new kid. And it was like just the mirrors between our family and this strip were uncanny. And so my mom still talks about it. Like it's it's one of her favorite pieces of art ever is this is this this comic run. So it was an I mean when I when I thought that I could have the opportunity to talk to her for the show, I just jumped at it. Right. No, and and there was even I don't know. Did you have the TV like they made they animated it and turned it into a TV show? Did you have? Uh, that? I think it was on TV. I don't know that I ever. I probably saw it, but I have no memory of right. it. I remember seeing like Christmas specials. Yeah. I, I, I think that's, that's all that they did because when I was doing the research for this, like I, I don't think it was ever actually an animated series. I think they just did a, a, a right. few different specials. Right. All right. So we're gonna go. We're gonna go play this interview for you. Um, it's a fantastic chat, and apparently they talk about dog yeah. sledding. So she lived. She lived for dog seven sledding. years in like northern Manitoba. Like she was at the Arctic Circle wow. in the middle of nowhere, and she kind of blew my mind with yeah. telling me what life was like for her. So it's it's crazy. Okay. Per- perfect. So we're gonna go play that for you right now. Hope you enjoy. Lynn, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's just it's a a thrill to have you. Thank you. You're um, welcome. I, so it's been, unless I did the math wrong, it's been all about 10 years since the strip ended, and now it's uh, seeing new life with IDW and the Library of American Comics in this gorgeous new edition. What's it like to see it start over with such beautiful, in like such a beautiful package? It was a real surprise. It was uh, a gift. I really have never seen the work treated with such care. <laughs> it's like, well, and and what's exciting too is that uh, they they published some wonderful classic comic art. So uh, I'm I'm to be considered one of the classics is uh, yeah. more than a compliment. It's quite wonderful. Yeah. Were Were you involved with the design of the book at all, or did you just sort of come in after the fact? We talked about the design. We have a really nice editor here in Vancouver. And to be honest, they did everything. They knew what they wanted. They've done this before. They, um, they're, they're really good at what they do. Yeah. And you don't argue with that. They, they sent us some of the other books that they had done, which were also really nicely done. Just mm-hmm. a, a very good, solid quality product with a, a very nice look. And we agreed, and we've worked with some publishers who were really difficult to work with, and and you know outside of Andrews and McNeil, which is my home company, and right. so between Andrews and McNeil and IDW, holy smokes! I mean, I've I've met some crazy characters, and this this bunch, they're just a, a joy to work with. 
Yeah, I the, I have to say the books are beautiful. I mean, I have I I wish I could afford all of them. <clears throat> excuse me, but they're just they're just gorgeous books. And like you're saying, they they have reprinted some of the really classic strips. So it's you're in good company for sure. Well, there's going to be nine volumes oh my in all. Goodness, which, um, which will be quite a a space on the bookshelf. But it's everything I've done without any changes from day one. And a number of the books that I did in the past, I actually pulled out a lot of the artwork and I didn't print at all. The first books were sort of a patchwork of the strips that I liked. I was very choosy. Mm-hmm. And these are, this is everything. That this was is the comprehensive. One yeah. This is, yeah, you know, we got to print it all or, or not at all. So, <laughs> I mean, all right. When you're going back to look at these, these are the earliest strips. Like these are the first two or three years. Like, what do you think when you look at them? Is it is it like reading something new? Um, no, it's very familiar. It's it's well, it's like your childhood drawings. In mm-hmm. fact, you open up your old folio of when you were twelve, and you look at the drawings that you did then, and you know them all. But it was way back then. And you know that you've changed over the years. So I look back at the earliest strips and I see how rough they were. But I had I had a baby to to look after, two babies actually. I had a, a four-year-old and a brand new newborn. Mm-hmm. And we were moving to northern Manitoba and we were living in um, a town of about about 800 people in the northern, almost in the Arctic in northern Manitoba. My wow. husband was a flying dentist. And so there were dog teams up there, literally. And uh, the only way to get the artwork out was by to put it on the bus mm. and to send it down to Winnipeg. And from Winnipeg, it went on a courier. But I was so close to the deadline because I had so much to do. Not only did I, you know, have very little time to produce the strip, but I had to walk down to the uh, Grey Goose bus line and hope that it got to Winnipeg <laughs> on time. And it was like literally 300 miles dirt road from to the next town oh my goodness and the next yeah and the next 1400 miles was was like paved but bad so if the bus didn't make it my work was stuck right we didn't have uh email or anything we had faxes the fax was new and so i could send faxes of my pencil roughs to my editor in kansas city and that was considered magical (laughs) wow (laughs) <laughs> how far we've come, right? <laughs> really, how far we've come. So not only has the drawing come and, and matured over the ages, but certainly the method of delivery. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I mean, I, I, okay, so I'm, I'm just, I'm 40. Um, so your strip is as old as me. So sorry about that. But I mean, so I, I remember pre-internet, I remember pre-email and, and when fax machines were new, but it's, it's so hard to, to remember because things are so easy and convenient now and so fast, you know, immediate, it's so hard to just recall how, how slow things were and how long it took just to get paper from here to there. Well, it was faster in the South. Because we, where we lived, we got a newspaper the day late. We only had, we had no movie theater. We had really no television. We had two, two TV stations and one radio station. Mm-hmm. And this was, again, it was almost in the Arctic. So um, it, was, it was primitive. Yeah. But, and it was also, in a tiny town, you're, you're known by everybody. And if you're working in your house, people drop by. They'll just walk in. 
And it was nothing for me to sit at my studio and have someone show up with their kids wanting me to put on the coffee. Yeah. So there were lots of interruptions. So the work was rough. It was the best I could do. That's all you can do, right? You right. can do the very best you can do, and that's it. You can't do any better. So uh, I did the best I could do. And when I look back, I see it was really fast and really rough, but I, I never missed a deadline. Yeah. That's that's amazing. So I mean, are there any? I mean, you say you look back and you recognize that it was rough, but are the, is do you cringe at all at any of it, or do you are you just proud because you know what work went into it and how hard you worked? Where I cringe is the coloring of the Sunday comics mm. because we once it left our hands, it had to go to um, it had to go to American Color in Buffalo. So it had to be approved in uh, Kansas City, then sent to Buffalo. We had to complete our work eight weeks in, in advance of the deadline so that it could all be colored in Buffalo. And Buffalo had a very primitive coloring system at the time. I think they had a choice of about eight colors. <laughs> and uh, you can see the old original Dick Tracy's and some of those that were colored by Ruby Lith and Amber Lith, where the color separations were made by hand, yeah. cut out literally by with adhesive paper. And that was just coming to an end when I got my contract and they were just starting to use color computers. But the system was very primitive again. And the, um, the artwork was, uh, you had to, you got a, a list of 60 colors, I believe. And, uh, now we had eight, then we had 64 mm -hmm. and you had to indicate on your facts, just where, what colors you wanted, where, and sometimes they didn't, follow your colors because they couldn't read it or because they they just didn't know what you wanted right and when you got back the sunday page it was colored and if it was wrong you were in you know uh, that was it it was too late no choice <laughs> it went out you saw it. you didn't see the color until it was in the paper oh wow and then you'd say oh my god that's not what i meant it's totally wrong <laughs> <laughs> and so so that would drive me crazy and those original colors are what's being reprinted in the new books. You're not retouching any of that, correct? No, 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 no. You're seeing some of the crazy colors. <laughs> so you're still cringing when you look at you flip through the pages. You're like, oh, let's just move past that one. <laughs> well, in fact, you go, how could that possibly be colored that way? But really, it was tough. We, the artists were coloring from a distance. And um, some of the artists, I think, um, I, I mean, in some of the classic artwork the colors were all specifically uh you know they they had they had that color code years ago and so i think they would just turn it in and american greetings or american color would color it as as they always knew it to be done but the newer artists like myself and mm. kathy and you know jimmy unger and some of the others we we were struggling to make it easy for them so that they knew exactly what we wanted. Yeah. And I, I eventually went down to American Greetings. I was living uh, in the east, you know, northeast. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I took the time to travel all the way to Buffalo to see American Greetings and to find out how they worked and what they needed from us. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that was the best thing you can possibly do. And I was the only cartoonist who, who did it. Really? You know, and I and I was living in the Arctic. I thought, <laughs> heck with this. I want to find out how these guys work and why the colors are not right. And I found out what they needed. And uh, it, it really improved our system. Yeah, and you were able to correct any of those errors. So, I mean, 
I would but, imagine yeah. that after yeah. yeah after that the colors I mean any mistakes that showed up were few and far between at that point. Well, actually, what I did was I arrived at the time when they were just coming up with a brand new uh, uh, electronic um, computerized coloring systems, and they had built a room for the coloring, and there were about four people trained to do it, and there was so much electronics in the room. It, felt like you were walking into a space capsule. Hmm. The floor was about six inches higher than it should be because of all the wiring underneath. And every wall was lights and, and, and computer terminals. And it's just like you would see in a, in a cartoon or a, a movie of some strange uh, outer space <laughs> 1960s moon rocket shot, right? I mean, <laughs> And, the, and the, this room hummed with electronics, and when you climbed up into it, you've, you felt as though you'd stepped into the future, and there were literally about four people trained to do the colors, and it, there were only 64 colors. And after talking to those people, I realized what the cartoonist could send them, and I made a presentation far too early before they could handle all of us. So they were getting a deluge of comic art from all the cartoonists who now knew, man, we got 64 colors. We can do anything. <laughs> so you were teaching everybody else how to do it. I did. I went to a, a, a comic art meeting. Um, we have a Ru the Rubin Awards every year. The National Cartoonist Society has an event every year. And we all go just because we we care about each other. And sure. it's an awards event, but it's just an excuse to drink and hang out and gossip sure. and meet each other. And when you and live so in the Arctic, that's a great excuse to get out, right? <laughs> oh, it was a wonderful excuse. A wonderful <laughs> excuse. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I was astonished to learn when I was reading up and, you know, preparing for this, that when the syndicate first approached you, you know, you submitted some samples, and then they just offered you a 20-year contract. I cannot imagine that that was typical. It doesn't happen very often. I think it happened uh, with Kathy Geiswhite as well. Uh, Kathy, this is what I did. I, I used to write cartoons at the bottoms of my letters and send them home to my parents. And Kathy did the same thing. And her dad was in advertising. And her mom was an artist and a real outgoing, uh, uh, in, it, 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 what is the word, intuitive mm -hmm. lady. And she sent Kathy's letters and drawings, just, I guess just the drawings at the bottoms of the letters to the syndicate. And I had done some books on what it was like to be pregnant, which were kind of irreverent for the time. Right. And one of the publishers sent these little books to Universal Press Syndicate. And I got this 20-year contract. And I was in shock. And I was pretty sure that I would not get the job. But they want because they wanted 20 comic strips immediately, which is really three weeks worth of work. Right. 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 They wanted 20 as fast as they could get. And I, I couldn't understand why they wanted 20 so fast. But it was because they want to know if you can work under pressure. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of pressure. That is a lot. And we were moving. Yeah, we, I was working on packing boxes and I had a brand new baby and we were moving up north. And so I, I thought, well, here we go. And I sent off 20. And, and they, they wanted me to come down to Kansas City right away. And so I packed my suitcase, uh, you know, got a neighbor to look after the baby, and, uh, and off I went. And the, um, you know, the, uh, the reception was very positive, but I was in shock. Yeah. I literally was in shock. And when they handed me the contract, 
they all walked out of the room and there I was at a big rosewood ca- uh, table with this contract. And I didn't even know that you should go to, you know, for advice, for, <laughs> for legal advice or anything. And I, you know, I signed the contract, whatever it was, I signed it. And I was very lucky, lucky to sign up with a good bunch of people who gave me a fair contract for the time. So I was not, I, I, I cannot look back and say how awful I was treated because I wasn't. I was very lucky that this was a, a good bunch who, who gave us a fair contract. 20 strips got you 20 years. I just, it just blows my mind. <laughs> Sounds like a jail sentence. Yeah. But, you know, it, it is a sentence in a way because then you are under obligation and a lot of pressure to produce a, an awful lot of work. And it, it sounds like, oh, you just have to do a drawing a day and send it in. Mm. But you have to do, you can't send in one a day. You have to send in a package of two weeks or so at a time. And it has to be good. And the drawing takes, the thinking takes time. The drawing takes time. The inking takes time. And when you're first doing it, the approval of your rough work takes time. Mm-hmm. And so by the time two weeks is up, that's about all you can do is two weeks of work. And to get it there on time is a really big challenge, especially if half of it goes by dog teeth. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to say. <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds yeah. like it must have been pretty overwhelming, you know, staring down like, okay, it's, and it's not like you got a contract. Let's, let's test you out for a year. See how, what the reception is like. They, you were signed up and you suddenly had to deliver 20 years worth of daily stories. I mean, well, to back up a little bit, uh, in fairness, again, to them, I asked them for a six month creative contract mm -hmm. so that I could at least learn how to do this. Because they had seen single panel gags that I'd done about child raising and babies and stuff. And I had done work for the local newspaper, which is all single panel. And writing dialogue is a totally different deal. You know, it's statement, 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 punchline, right. or statement, statement, punchline reaction. And there's a method to it and, a, you know, an arc to it, which I never learned to do. It's like writing a tiny little play. So I phoned Kathy Guyswhite. And to be honest, they, you know, the people in this industry are wonderful people. They're, they're generous and kind and supportive. And I thought, oh, geez, this is like Hollywood. Maybe I'll get a, <laughs> a good part and people will smile and, be, you know, pretend they're my friend, but then wish I hope I'll, I'll fail. And I'm sure that's not what it's like in Hollywood, but that's what the Hollywood movies are like. Right. right? <laughs> you know, that nobody, nobody's sincerely glad for you. So um, it wasn't that way in the comic art. Uh, people were wonderful, and people who had been in the business for longer than I had were more than happy to help me out. So I did have a creative contract for six months. And at the end of that six months, I then felt that I, I maybe was ready. But even then, it's like you're yeah. taking your first solo flight off the airport, you know, and boy, you just have to trust that little airplane. Yeah. How do you know if you're really ready, right? <laughs> Um, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have accepted it if I hadn't thought I could do it. Yeah. And again, all you can do is your best, right? Sure. I, I, if you get a, and the the good thing too was that I was heading off to a tiny little outport of a little mining town in northern Manitoba, and I had a job. <sighs> I had a real job. I was taking it with me. I had my drafting table. I had my pen and ink and my brains, and I had a real job that I could do at home. How lucky is that? Yeah. 
That is amazing. It's not not everybody gets to say that. It's in, that's I mean, you had job security big time, right? I I did, and I also had the isolation. Yeah. And the isolation, which was horrible, and it would send most of us screaming out of our house looking for friends or booze or <laughs> you know some some kind of some kind of you know uh, diversion from the tedious business of being you know at fifty below camped you know cramped in a little house. You know, you you really do go crazy in the north sometimes, and that's part of what bonds you together. But it's also what makes you creative. Yeah. And and I was able to to really focus on this. I was again very lucky to be heading off to the north of Manitoba, where it's nothing around, nothing. There was it, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine that much nothingness. <laughs> um, but well, listen, it, listen. It, it, it was so bad that when the when the vegetable truck came in, we would all run down to the grocery store <laughs> to grab everything before everybody else could. And then you'd see two ladies fighting over a green pepper. Honest <laughs> to God, <laughs> it, was, it was interesting. Is that isolation? I mean, did you did you need it to be creative? Like, do you think that you could have stayed on deadline and been as creative as you were if you were in the middle of Manhattan or in the middle of Toronto or something like that? Knowing myself, me, no. Yeah. I needed that. I needed, and I needed it because of the publicity more than anything. Because the strip started with 150 papers, which they were really happy with. And they were 150 good papers looking for the type of thing I did, which was family from a woman's point of view. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't particularly sweet either. You know, I was pretty. I was pretty angry about doing all the diapers and <laughs> expected to look good first thing in the morning when I'd been up all night with a baby with the poops, right? Right. And and so I I had a sarcastic streak. And so the strip was something new at a time when people were looking for something new. So the publicity was instant and and from everywhere. And I'm a ham. I like being on the stage. I don't mind public speaking. I have a lot of fun uh, uh, being, uh, uh, you know, I would do stand-up. And here I was with all of this publicity, unable to be reached. People couldn't get to me. Once in a while, some poor slob would come all the way up north, and we'd have to cover them in furs. and Because, you, know, you know, they step off the plane and turn it instantly to ice. i got to tell you, one, one woman reporter showed up at our place. Uh, we we picked her up off the airplane, and the first thing she says, "Oh, I'm so excited! What time did the Northern Lights come on?" Oh no! <laughs> so we'll, well, we just flip them on around nine o'clock. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Anyway. <laughs> totally unprepared. Totally. I, I, how how can you be prepared if you if you don't live there or have never been there? How can you be prepared for such an environment, though? You know, that's that's probably one of the best comments I've ever heard from someone who has never lived up north because you can't be prepared. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. It's a different world. I mean, everybody wants to go to the moon or to Mars. They're, you know, sign me up. I'll pay millions of dollars. They've never been to the Arctic. Right. Idiots. <laughs> that's another planet. You know, Iceland is another planet. Yeah. Newfoundland, Canada is another planet. The tip of Chile is another planet. And whenever you, you go to another planet on this earth, your whole head changes. Yeah. And so living living in the Arctic for just a short while, we were just up there for seven years, and I I changed. 
Oh, I'm sure. I changed. Sure. I became a nicer person. <laughs> I was a nicer person, nicer than a city person. You probably, you know, easier to, to chat with because you're always starved for conversation, I would imagine. No, it's that you know everybody. Yeah. And because you know everybody, you know an awful lot about people's families and why they are the way they are. And the comic strip was enriched by that because in a, I live in a city now. I hardly know my neighbors. I know right. my next door neighbor just a little bit, but I've never been invited into his home. But there, we all needed each other. We relied on each other. And a stranger would come up to you and put their bare hands on your face because they could see you had frostbite. Mm. And suddenly you're having coffee with them and finding out that he's the new principal of the school, you know. And it's, you know, you, you got to know people who were in trouble and people who had very little education and people who, you know, had terrible family lives. And you knew people who were brilliant brilliant musician. We, we had people come from all over the world up north because we needed teachers and doctors and legal people. So they came from India and Ireland and China. Mm. And, you know, it was a real mix of people. And, and in that environment where everybody depends on everybody else and nobody can be a jackass mm -hmm. because it doesn't do you or them any good. And the few people who, in town who were arrogant, miserable people, they, you know, unless they started to laugh at themselves, they were laughed at a town. Yeah, you can't escape. There's you can't you can't keep your head low and, no. and have nobody see you in a small town like that. And no. I'm sure, like you said, that all of that, all of that just enriched the strip. It all went into making it a more robust and realistic place. And those characters came alive because of that. What it did was it kept me from having a villain. When I first started, I didn't realize the strip was going to be a story. I didn't realize that it was going to sort of consecutively uh, grow as my children did. I didn't know that. I thought it was going to be gag a day, and right. I'd have to think of something sort of witty to do every day. And and Ellie Patterson was going to have a neighbor who was so horrible that there would be all kinds of bitter stuff happening, and that would be... You know, she'd be the foil, like, uh, you, you know, the Joker and right, Batman. Right, right. But as I was in this little town and you got to know people with all their ups and downs, it's like your high school class, these little towns. Sure. In your high school class, you've been with these people shoulder to shoulder, and you know who the drunk is and who the flirt <laughs> and the brain and the wallflower and the cheat and the liar. And, the you know, you know the people yeah. in that class, and, and yet... You you have an affection for them, even if you don't like them. It's like, man, that was the conglomerate, that was that was the you know the wash basin full of silt right there. You know, yeah. Some of us were nuggets and some of us were stones, but my God, there we were. And when you meet them now as adults, you say, there you are, part <laughs> of my life, right? So when you're in a town like this. Everybody there is sort of like your high school class where you know the town drunk and the prostitute and, the, right. you know, the religious nut and, the, <laughs> you know, the greedy one and the selfish one and the kind one and the, you know, <laughs> and the brain, you know, them all. And so the, I realized that there was no such thing as somebody that was all evil. And so the character, the neighbor, Connie, who was going to be the, the nemesis, I knew. I, she yeah. wasn't all bad. She had a side to her that was negative, but for the most part, the two of them 
had a lot in common, and Ellie and Connie became uh, best friends in this strip. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you said when you started, you didn't know that you thought you assumed it was just going to be gag a day and you were going to have to come up with those jokes to land in every strip. So at what point did you realize that this was going to be not only an ongoing narrative, but that you were going to have your characters age, which is not something that is common in strips in comic strips. It, it began with my desperation to write something that I thought was worthy. Yeah. And I would write, a situation. I'm, I'm a mother now. I've got two kids. One's five and one's, you know, one and a half now. And um, I can see that there's more to this family thing than just a gag a day. So I started to ask myself, and then what happened? You know, a kid does something, husband yells, mom yells at the kid, right. goes to bedroom. That's, you know, you make a joke out of that. But then what happened? Am I the kid sitting in the bedroom wishing I hadn't said what I said? Am I the dad wishing he hadn't interfered? Am I the mom thinking that she's too hard on the kids? Mm. Am I the baby thinking, is she going to hit me? You know, I mean, uh, and you suddenly realize that there's all these brains and all these relationships going on. And then what happened? And so something that happened became a, 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 a comment the next day. And it went from silly and aggravating and and philosophical things to tiny little vignettes maybe that would go three three in a row of how you would work something out well once it became little vignettes it became little stories and once there was a story I would look at my children I would say my gosh their vocabulary is changing their looks are changing right I, I can't keep the kids in the strip young all the time because Everything's changing all around me. And so um, I talked to Kathy Guyswhite, and she said, you know, I've, I've suffered from making my strip with my name. You know, the, the yeah. name Kathy is not me. And, and Kathy herself, I mean, she draws Kathy in the strip looking you know, shaped like a brick and looking like a <laughs> little nebbish. But Kathy herself, I don't know if you've met Kathy, but she's glamorous and beautiful. She looks like a model. She's tiny. She's a little bit shorter than I am, perhaps, but she's petite and funny and gorgeous with big brown eyes and long brown hair. And you look at her and go, holy smoke, that's (laughs) Kathy, you know? And I think she was on Johnny Carson a few times. They're funny as anything. And she's, you know, she said, I have really suffered from having the strip so closely related to me. So if you're going to do a strip about your family, you've got to separate everybody from the strip as much as you can. So I, I kept the kids in the, in, in the strip young for three years, <clears throat> excuse me, right at the beginning, so that my own kids could grow up. Because I remember in school, anybody three years older than you were, they were adults. Oh, right? sure. If you're in grade one, you don't socialize, socialize with someone in grade three and four. Right. So, uh, so having the kids in the, uh, in the strip stay young so that my own children could grow up a bit was really healthy, and it also allowed me to look back in time so that they wouldn't be embarrassed if I did a story, say, about wetting your pants or something. It, 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 they're not beyond that now. They're well and truly beyond that. And right. They really didn't, they didn't pay much attention to my work, They and I didn't want them to. I wanted them to be free and independent, and that three years saved, saved all of us. It was a great thing to do. 
Um, so you didn't shy away from a lot of weighty, more serious topics, especially for the time. And there were some controversies about the, the, the issues that you wanted to bring up in the strip. How much pushback did you hear from your editors or from newspapers? I know um, I was reading again, preparing for this. I was reading about when, uh, you know, when you when you wanted to tackle the issue of homosexuality and coming out to your parents. Um, th- I know that there were a lot of newspapers that that did not appreciate that. But did that happen a lot with other issues or was it really just an is- a couple isolated incidents over the years? Well, I tried to push the boundaries all the time. I yeah. mean, once they tell you that, that you can't do this or you can't do that, we all want to do it. You know, and sure. we had like, put a, in, you can't put a butt crack in the paper. Well, <laughs> I did. Bill Watson did. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, they call it the gluteal fold. Anyways, <laughs> anyways, I, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, write a story that I knew was real from my own experience everywhere and anything that was real like everything from child abuse to alcoholism to divorce to all of those things were real and everywhere and and when a friend of mine was murdered he was a comedy writer for the CBC in Canada here and he and I've known each other since grade eight and Michael was funny and 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 very very uh, happy with his his way of life. Mm-hmm. He 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 was a joy, a, a comedian that that just never stopped. And he was murdered. And the attitude of the police was where well, there's one more off the street. Mm. And I was I went ballistic, and so did his partner because we all knew that he was you know he was first of all he was a comedy writer and uh, right. whatever. Whatever this had happened, he didn't deserve to to die for his stereo and his bicycle. That's what were stolen. Mm. Anyways, um, I did the story for my friend Michael, for whom Michael in the strip was named actually well before Michael Boncourt was murdered, and uh, and so I I contacted my editor and I said, can I do this story? And he said, well, you might lose a few papers. And I said, I think it's worth it because I'm going to do a pretty honest story, but it's not going to be a graphic story. The, right. the main, the main tension is going to be between the parents and the son. And they, he said, I think that's fine. And they, they always supported me, whatever I did. And I never blindsided them with anything, but a lot of the editors in, in the papers that you know, my strip was in, they felt blindsided because they didn't read the memo. Yeah. A memo came out. <laughs> yeah. A memo came out eight weeks ahead of the strip that said you can either run this series and the and here it is, or else you can run an alternate series. Here it is. Well, many papers, you know, many editors didn't read that, and they were they were furious because they didn't know this was going to uh, going to happen in their newspapers. They would say, "Do we have to read the comics page?" No, no. You know what? They thought that the comics should always be, you know, something something innocuous, right? And so um, I lost about 50 papers, but at the same time, I gained about 55 because every time a paper would drop me, another rival paper would pick it up. Mm -hmm. So I ended up gaining a few papers because there were editors who really wanted the story. The people who were really in the most 
hot water were editors in small newspapers in small communities. Because, again, you know, a small community is like your high school class. And this editor who's like the guy at the post office or the guy at the bank, you see each other all the time. And he would go to the corner store for a coffee and be harassed by people who didn't like the story. They'd come in and scream at him. And one guy said his dog was spray painted and his kid was beaten up in school. And, oh my gosh. you know, it was the, it was the editors in the small papers that received the most, uh, flack from this big papers like the Chicago Tribune and the Vancouver Sun they were thrilled they thought this is wonderful we we love this kind of uh, mm-hmm. openness and we think this is appropriate and we're you know we're applauding it yeah. whereas many many editors of small town newspapers really had trouble because it was you know it was something in small towns especially rural america canada we barely got any backlash at all. I think the Halifax Herald dropped me and they've never picked <laughs> me up. <laughs> I guess it's a pretty conservative paper. But, you know, the, the most hate mail I got was from Peoria. Really? Peoria, of, of all things. And I thought, why in the world is that? And I was I was suffering because I was getting phone calls from 7 in the morning till 11 at night from reporters oh. and editors and commentators and, you know, and I answered the ball. I didn't refer any to this. I thought I did the story. I'll, I'll take the calls. And I did. And I talked to wonderful people. I mean, editors are angry with you when they think they're being backstabbed. But once you start to talk to them, you realize that, you know, we, again, there's no such thing as somebody's bad and somebody's good. We all have a level if you're if you're respectful towards mm-hmm. each other right? right so i talked to these folks but i called uh, the editor at a peoria newspaper and i said what's going on in peoria he said well i think caterpillar tractor is one of their biggest i i, I probably shouldn't even say those words because i don't know for sure there was a huge manufacturing company and they had just laid off like hundreds of workers and everybody in peoria was mad they're all firing off angry letters. Because they're, they're just mad. You know? They're looking for things they're to be mad, mad about. Yeah. That's right. And I thought, okay, so let's let's get angry with somebody who's written a story about a kid. Who, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that, that makes sense. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and, you- oh, and I quickly, quickly, the other thing I have to tell you is that I got, I got box loads of, of postcards from really right-wing religious people saying, Dear Mr. Jackson, we hate what you're doing in the Sunday page. Well, it's not Mr. Jackson, and it never appeared in the Sunday page. So you know that somebody had got their, many people had got their fold fold together and said, all right, folks, we're going to all of us write to this. And uh, right now, people who'd never heard of me, never read the story, didn't know anything about it, just followed like sheep and sent me these postcards. From everywhere, all over the states, postcards. <sighs> and I really want—I really wish I could say, "Wow, my how times have changed," but really, they haven't. Because you could, I could, I could see this they happening haven't. today. Mm-hmm. I mean, sad, sad, sad. It is. Do you know? <laughs> do you know? Like of all the papers that dropped you, though, do you know how many eventually took you back? Started printing it again. A few took me back. I, yeah. You know, we'd have to go back into the archives. Yeah, I just was out. curious if, if you, you knew. Well, my my web designer can tell you that. She she was the one who helped me through all the whole business. Yeah. So, uh, 
Were, yeah. were there any topics that you, you wanted to talk about, you wanted to, you know, to broach with the public, but you just didn't think that the strip was a good medium for? Uh, I really wanted to cover infidelity and mm-hmm. lying to your partner. And um, I never did. It, it involved the neighbor, Annie, and I had sort of started to develop her character. But I never did that story. And maybe for two reasons. One was because I had already too many characters, too many intense stories. I mean, we counted up 90 characters when I'd finished the strip and we were starting to analyze it. 90. And that includes teachers and boyfriends and school friends. I mean, you know, once you've got your kids growing up and they leave the family home, then you've got the world out there to connect to. And that's the way we are. So I had too many characters, but maybe deep down inside, I knew it wasn't a good story to do because maybe deep down inside, I knew that that was the exact thing going on in my life, mm. you know, because yeah. you, 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 it's, it's much easier to deny something that is happening than to face it head on yeah. and to break up a family. It's much easier to make excuses for a partner than to say, you know what? I don't believe you. Yeah. I mean, so that kind of ties into, you know, so one of the aspects, what's interesting for me, I think, aspects of the new book is that you've included these little footnotes to indicate, like, when something was an actual quote or when something was actually pulled directly from from real life. Um, But were there aspects, I mean, you, you kind of just alluded to this, but were there aspects of your life that you just, you didn't want to translate to the strip? You just wanted to keep them private. It just had no business being in the strip. Well, the way we lived, I didn't want people to know about that because it wasn't something that other people could identify with. First of all, living so far up north that, you know, literally dog teams were not unusual for us to see and 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 wolves and, you know, things like that. We lived in the Canadian north. Right. So people couldn't identify with that. It had to be a suburban family. Also, later on, when, when uh, you know, it was a really good job. My husband was a dentist. We, we were living quite well. And that's not something you can share with somebody. Gee, I think I'll buy a new car. Right. You know, like our, our neighbors would say, well, that must be nice for you. Mm-hmm. But I haven't paid off the one that I bought four years ago. And it's, you know, starting to rattle. Mm-hmm. And, and so things like, I took flying lessons. I learned to fly and I had my license and, you know, I loved to fly mm-hmm. and I wanted to share that with people, but I couldn't because how many people get a chance to learn to fly? Exactly. We had an, we had our own airplane for years. So things like that, that put us in a different category from the mom and dad and kids in the, you know, community and, you know, in a regular community, if the mother is not working at a, lucrative job you know a dentist's salary is a good salary but you know he has to share that with all the people in the room it's not you know like a, a doctor just has one receptionist but a dentist has yeah. you know a receptionist maybe two and you know a couple of assistants and you know a hygienist and all these people you have to pay plus all your materials cost a lot so you know in defense of dentistry it's a super expensive business to run so what you bring home is not as much as people imagine it's going to be. Yeah. Do you still fly? So, 
No, I haven't in a long time. Because mm. uh, at the time I had access to our, our plane and to a lot of different aircraft. I could I could only fly a little 152 <laughs> Cessna, right? That's more than I could do. <laughs> like climbing on the back of a bumblebee. <laughs> <laughs> and I never got my instrument rating. So I used to fly IFR, meaning I follow roads. Yeah. Oh, man, I've always wanted to learn how to fly. That's amazing. <laughs> well, do it. Do it. Yeah. I, I learned, yeah, I was in my 40s when I learned to fly, and right. it's wonderful. It's, so, yeah, do it. Just There's just hope for me yet, right? <laughs> there is absolutely hope for you. <laughs> do, have you ever thought, like, in a way, you were one of the original bloggers? You know, like the parenting bloggers, especially moms, is this huge thing now. You know, people write about their daily routines, the ups and downs of parenting, the, you know, the things that other moms and dads can relate to. And it, it seems, if you think about it from a certain point of view, that you kind of paved the way for this whole army of mommy bloggers that's taken over the internet now. Hum. <laughs> like... <laughs> hum. I couldn't, I couldn't have... I couldn't have written about the ups and downs of family life without the artwork. Yeah. To me, those, those expressions... You know, it, I mean, it, you you nail somebody with a comment and there's an expression on their face that if you can draw it, it goes, the reader will look at it and that expression goes right into your eyeballs, whacks you on the back of the head, rolls around a few times and you say, yeah, I know how that feels, mm -hmm. right? And, and unless you are... Uh, unless you are a, a wonderfully creative writer like Irma Bombeck, and there are a few others, and I don't, I don't know what the modern writers are. Irma was one of my heroes. But mm -hmm. unless you're that kind of writer, it's awfully hard. It would be awfully hard for me to sustain an audience, I think, or to sustain me. That's where, that's where the, the breakup would be. And in, in, in newspapers, uh, a comic strip artist has to sustain their art beyond three years. You have to do a daily... A, a daily statement every day for three years before your readers are really there for you and you are there for them. They will, by then they'll know that Lucy's a fuss budget and Linus is a philosopher and uh, Charlie Brown is a, a nebbish. And, you know, before you, you know the characters well enough and care about them and want to read about them again tomorrow. And a lot of people who are artists now by the end of three years, they're exhausted and they don't, they can't sustain it. So it's, it's being able to write or draw or both well enough to be able to sustain an audience beyond three years. And yeah. if you can do that, you become part of the daily routine of people and yourself. Yeah. But if you can't do that, and I don't know how long bloggers can last, and I don't know how long, I know a lot of young new comic strip artists don't last beyond three years. Yeah. And I think that's why um, graphic novels are so good, because if it takes you three years to do a graphic novel, you've done something that you can publish and put out there and it has a future, right? But mm -hmm. if you've done a comic strip for three years and you've just struggled along to get an audience and it's really just been a statement a day and at the end of it, there's no story, then it disappears into the ether along with all kinds of other stuff yeah. that, that people don't see or don't remember. So you, you did the, the strip for 30 years, give or take. Did you ever get frustrated? Like, so you, did you ever have other creative itches that the strip just couldn't scratch? Like, that you just, because you were so 
busy with just with your deadlines and having that daily strip that you just didn't have the time or the freedom to do anything else, even though you, you really wanted to. Um, I wanted to try public speaking. I wanted to try stand up. Really? And, um, yeah. And I, I did quite a bit. I, uh, I was hired by a really wonderful company called unique lives. And I did, um, I did a show, uh, I think five in the States and five in Canada and I realized how hard that was to do. I mean, uh, a really good stand-up comic works really, really hard. And it's a very t- it's probably the toughest job on the planet. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and I realized, you know, and I'd done a number of shows with other comedians and people who encouraged me. And I realized it was not something I could do. And, and especially when I, you know, still had kids at home. But um, I've done it enough to know that it's it's not something that I could do. But I because because I really wanted to do it well. Yeah. And if you do if you do a great show and everybody says, oh, wow, we want to see you do that again. The next time you do a great show, it has to be all new. Mm. Right. My my partner's a musician and he's he complains that musicians are told show after show, oh play your old stuff. We can't wait to you gotta play, you know, play yeah. name name an old tune. Yeah, they know? want the songs that they know. Anne Marie said she sang so Snowbird so many times she forgot the words once because she was wallpapering her daughter's bedroom in her head, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so but 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 stand up comics have to have new material all the time. People are hungry, greedy, insatiable for laughs. Laughs are they they pull you out of out of the depths of your soul to to bring you to the surface and open you up with joy, right? Yeah. Music can do that to a certain extent because you sing along, but there's something about laughter that just it chops away everything that that is upsetting. It it just brings you out of that mood and it just makes you laugh out loud and it is the best medicine. And you cannot do that every night on stage without it taking a huge toll. Sure. And so um, as much as I appreciate stand-up comics, um, I could never be one. I got to know Phyllis Diller quite well. Mm-hmm. She, I wrote to her, and she invited me to come and visit her in Los Angeles, and I did. Mm-hmm. And I would go out to dinner with her, and she would sit in a corner in the restaurant. She liked a corner table so that she could face the room because everybody knew she was Phyllis Diller. And she would she would talk out loud and make comments to everybody in the room as if to say, yes, sir, I'm here and I'm on stage. <laughs> and she, you know, and after three martinis, you know, <laughs> she, she, she had done the crowd. And it wasn't until we got home to her place that, and, and even then, it took her a while to, to not be Phyllis and to not be wearing the wig and, and, and to just be herself with a cup of tea and her feet up, you know. And I don't think I could live like that because it's it is your life, yeah. and it and it's it you know your your audience becomes your lover, you know, yeah. and you have to please them and be on your knees to them and beg to them and hate them and love them and you know that's your life. It, so I couldn't do that. It's it's so funny. But I tried. Yeah, that that's amazing that that I never knew that that you wanted to do stand up, but it's what it's what's. 
ironic, I guess, to hear is from hearing you say that that's got to be the, the hardest job. Like, for me, it seems that what you did all those years has got to be one of the hardest creative jobs that there is. You, so you've got a three or four panel strip, and in the space of a tweet, basically, you, you've got to either land a joke, land a gag, or say something profound, you know, but still have it tie into an overall narrative and make sense. I mean, that's got to be one of the hardest creative jobs out there. It is. But after a while, there's, there's a bit of a formula. You're also working with actors. So you're, you're a writer, you're an actor, uh, you're, you're a director, you're a photographer. You know, you're, it's like a little movie. Yeah. And there's a formula to it. And after a while, you get into a routine. After three years, when you trust yourself, because there are days when there's no ideas at all. And you can just sit on a couch with a notepad on your lap and nothing comes and you fall asleep. Well, you trust yourself to know that next day you'll be that all the stuff that was missing today will come tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So after three years, you start to trust yourself and you start to know it will come. You also have to be a really hard worker. It drives me crazy when I see young cartoonists working in a hotel room during the Rubin Awards Mm -hmm. because they didn't get off their duff and, and get ahead. And you can. And I did it with little kids. And, and, you know, running a family and making dinners for people and lunches for kids in school. I did it because I worked evenings and weekends and holidays. You have to be a really diligent, hard worker. You have to, you have to fulfill your obligation to that contract and, to your, and not only to your syndicate, but to every editor who's expecting your work in the strip on time that week. Yeah. Everybody. So, but you're 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 shielded by your studio walls you're not standing on a on a stage you're you're not gonna you know lay an egg on uh, on a stage when you're at home and you can say geez i didn't like that i'm going to erase it and do it again no i didn't like that i'm going to erase it and do it again okay now i like it now i'll send it in there's a safety net there that you don't have in stand-up. In stand-up, it's you. And there's always some moron in the, in the audience who's going to say something to, to shatter your train mm-hmm. of thought. But that doesn't happen when you're doing comic strips. The, the moron out there that's going to send you a nasty comment, you don't have to read it. That's true. Let the, moron, let the moron's comment go out into the ether and maybe his <laughs> pal morons will read it and say, hey, buddy, that was a cool comment. I don't care. I'm never going to see it. I don't care. You can waste your time in your basement, but I don't care, right? But on a stage, you're vulnerable. Yeah. Did you ever give thought to continuing the story, like, in a different format? Like, you mentioned graphic novels, like doing a long-form graphic novel or a prose novel, even? If I did that, it would be different characters, different subject matter. It would be totally different. It would not be for better or for worse. Because when you've told a story, you've told a story. It's over. It's over. I mean, Men in Black, the sequel was great, but the third one sucked. (laughs) It's the same for, it's the same for, you know, a lot of these shows. They, you know, they, they, they die of, of, Anui. Yeah, <laughs> they, yeah. they, they have to die. You know, you can only you can only milk a cow for so long before the damn thing falls over dry and dead, right? Yeah. So <laughs> anyways, it, I had I had done this story to the best of my ability. My husband had left me for uh, the woman he hired to run my business. Yeah. And uh, and I was writing a story about a cutesy poo family that was working and I was um I was 
shocked and on my own in a house that used to be a family home. So my kids were grown and gone. Uh, my husband was uh, doing his, uh, you know, Viagra divorced. And <laughs> you know, just in shock. So I thought, you know, the story is over. It's told itself. And, and besides, I had my drawing had changed to the point where too tight. I was drawing every brick in the buildings because I had an artist working with me. And she would do the lettering. I would do all the characters. But because I had another artist working with me doing backgrounds, the backgrounds became more and more complicated Mm -hmm. because I'm a perfectionist and I want to get better and better and better. And sometimes you can get so better that it gets worse. Yeah. (laughs) You know, It, it, it really becomes too tight, too perfect. And then how do you add new characters without them all looking the same? You know, uh, there's a way of drawing that is like your signature. You know, when you sign a check or you sign on the dotted line, your signature is never exactly the same if you put tracing paper, you know, or you put it up to the light and put one signature over another, over another. They're all tiny bit different, tiny bit different. But in the end, when you look at it, you know that's your signature. And that's what comic artists, too, you get good at drawing certain a certain way and if you try to change that to add a new character you can tell that there's something wrong just like you can tell manga is drawn by a consortium because one guy draws trees great other guys draws cars great but the guy drawing the characters sucks you know (laughs) what why is that character so badly drawn with the mouth that drops over the chin but yet that pontiac looks (laughs) 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 and and so (laughs) so you know, so it, it it looked it looked contrived to me when the drawing and because I started to add lips to characters, so you can't make a mouth sort of huge as someone screaming if yeah. they have lips, and you can't stretch a dog's yawn if the dog has a skeleton that has to you know be accurate. And I started to think like an an, an anatomist, you know, well, this has to be right, and that has to be right, and, you know, the car has to look right, and the perspective on the street has to look right, and if you walk walk down the hall stairway, you have to be able to see right into that living room exactly the way it is, with the couch exactly under the curtains the way it is. I mean, it got so precise that Mm -hmm. I lost the freedom and the joy and the spontaneity of my original drawings. Yeah. It's also got to be, I mean, after the, after so much time to 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 rec to st- step back and recognize that I've told my story, I don't need to continue it. I don't need to keep introducing new characters. I don't need to write novels or or take it to a TV show and tell brand new stories. Like to be able to just step back and say that's it. I came. I told the story I wanted to tell, and there's no more stories that that should be told in this little in this world that I've created. That's how I felt. I felt that once I brought it full circle where the children were now married and had children the same age as the kids were when I started, that was a great way to end it because it was a full life cycle for better or for worse. You know, a full family, having a family, having a family, (laughs) you know. Yeah. And, and I had been approached to do television and sitcoms and animation, but Everybody who's approached me has been American, and they all want it to be American. They want the characters to live a certain way and to 
go to the Macy's parade and, you know, <laughs> they, you know, they don't want a Canadian family there, which is fine with me because I, I told them when I signed the contract that if it had to be American, I, I would not sign the contract. So my editors were all on, on board and it will be a Canadian story forever. Mm, and, good for you. Uh, that's the way it'll stay. Yeah. Do you think that it's possible for young artists today to make a living as a cartoonist still? I really don't know. I don't know how new things are happening. I think that if you are really good at something, you will succeed. And that goes for graphic novels, and that goes for comic art of all kinds. But you have to be really good, (laughs) you know, and you have to be able to draw. You have to be able to write. And you also have to be able to listen to people who say that doesn't work. Because so many people are so full of themselves that they think, well, my mom likes it, I like it, but Dan, you're you're working for an audience. You're on a stage. This is stand-up comedy. You know, those eggs are going to come at you. Mm-hmm. And the audience that you're trying to settle down and make them listen, you know, that's who you're working for. I mean, it's it's a job, people. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a job. If you want to make money at it, it's a job. So you're working for an audience. You're not working for yourself. You know, don't sit down and take a deep drag on your, you know, spliff and say, hey, you know, this is cool. I like it. <laughs> You're working for, you You know, you got to get up off the ground, take a bath, set up, <laughs> set up a drafting table, be sober. Yeah. Work hard, work hard and be able to work on a deadline and be able to, to please an audience. And I think you will find yourself a job. My guess is it's graphic novels now. I think graphic novels are the entry to video and and uh, live action, and it's you know it gives it gives producers everything they need to get into uh, you know something that draws your audience into a theater or you know a, a big screen TV. But yeah. I don't know about newspapers. Are you still drawing? I'm still drawing, but my eyes are a mess. I have a growth in one eye, and the other eye doesn't work too well. Mm. So I really cannot. Yeah, that's the other thing, you know. People say, well, why don't you do another strip? Well, geez, my hands shake. Yeah. My eyes don't work. I'm 70 years old. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) It just happened, right? (laughs) (laughs) I know. You look in the mirror and you say, who the hell is that? (laughs) And why do I fart all the time? You know? And it's... (laughs) You know, what happened? And um, I've moved back to North Vancouver where I grew up, and I'm running into my old high school buddies. And we can recognize each other because you know what we recognize? We recognize our smiles. Mm. We all look different, but our smiles are the same. And we really care about each other because we're still survivors. You know, even though 70 is not old now, many of us have gone. And so... I suppose I could write about what it's like to be 70, but at the same time, the only people who are really going to enjoy it is us. <laughs> and, this is the, <laughs> and this is the time for us to get together and to really enjoy each other because in the end, you know, your friends and your family are, are the only thing you really have yeah. and your health if you're lucky. So yeah. I've been lucky to maintain my friends and my family throughout having a, a, a career that could have made me and did for a while make me turn into an arrogant jackass. You know? 
I mean, you can be so full of yourself. Fame is a very, very ugly thing. I mean, and we all want it, right? Yeah, oh, sure. I wish I could be rich and famous. Well, you've become rich and famous, and the chances of becoming an asshole are like 99.9%. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Canada. <laughs> Where would you be today if For Better or For Worse had never taken off or if you had never gotten that, ch- that shot with the syndicate? I would have had a really good ad agency. It yeah. would have been a really good ad agency with with great gags and probably working in uh, in film, uh, you know, commercials. I love commercials, really good commercials. I don't know how many really good commercials there are, but you know, many of them don't hold your attention. The best ones now are online because you know you can skip ad, you know, so right. you're not hooked in that few seconds. Man, that would be my incentive. I'm going to get that those eyeballs for that, you know, they're not going to press skip ad. And very few, very few commercials uh, I can look at without going to the skip ad. So I would, that would be my incentive. I'd be, I'd have a really good ad agency and I would be scouring around for really good kind of off the wall and, uh, you know, sarcastic, obnoxious people like I was. (laughs) (laughs) Well, like like you told me to just go out and, and start to learn to fly, you should do it. There's still time. Go start your ad agency. You know what? I don't have the energy. Yeah. And and I don't care. You have to care, right? Sure. And what I care about what I care about is lunch. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny how it's seventy when you're uh, putting on a pair of support hose. <laughs> and wondering why you fart so much. Lunch becomes real important, you know. And going and looking after my grandkids, you know, hey, that's cool. Yeah. Well, I will let you go I'm eat a- your lunch. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Lynn, thank Thanks you so much. You. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. This has just been an absolute pleasure. Okay. <laughs> you too. Thanks. So something I've always wondered, and, and I know this is a weird thought to have, but back when I was like, probably teenager reading the comic that would be the first thing we get the paper and i would rip to the comic mm-hmm. section I'm right sure it, right and and i would always see the names like the signatures on them and see who they were by and i always wondered like do these people because you know they're all pretty much the same in every major paper the same strips the same people over and over do these people have like a secret club like do they get together once a mm-hmm. year and you know, do you know what i mean well, do they do, do the schultz and jim davis and lynn johnston do they have like a a bar that they meet at where they yes. chat. <laughs> yes, they do. And, you know, everybody else just listened to the interview. You haven't because we just literally, I just got off the phone with her. So you haven't heard it yet because you weren't on it. But she does talk about that, how every year there's this awards, there's oh, cool. an awards ceremony for, for cartoonists. And she said it basically was an excuse to just go somewhere warm because she lived in the Arctic Circle um, or right. warmer, hang out with her other cartoonist friends and go to the bar. So yes, is the answer to wow. your question. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so that was in the interview for full, like, so people know, like, I'm not just like a sleep at the wheel. I didn't hear Jamie just did the interview and I haven't heard it yet. So (laughs) I didn't just like blind. I uh, I should (laughs) also say, we didn't mention this at the top. The reason I talked to her, and I mentioned this in the interview, but the reason she's doing press and doing an interview is because IDW, the comic book publisher, IDW, um, they have an imprint called the Library of American Comics. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen these books, but they're just gorgeous. They're so they're big oversized hardback books that 
they they collect an entire run of classic newspaper comic strips. So they've done a lot of of the of the most famous comic strips out there. And hers, the first volume just came out. It covers, I'm looking at the book right now, volume one, 1979 to 1982. And she said there's ultimately going to be nine different books that covers the entire run of the of the strip. And just this first volume is probably like two and a half inches thick. Like it's huge. So wow. when once that library is complete, it's going to take up a big chunk of your bookshelf. But man, is that where it's going to be worth it? That's, that'd be yeah. so cool to have. Yeah. Like that's pretty neat. And of course, you'll be sent them. All I don't know about all of them. I got the first one. You're Jamie. All right, guys. Thank you so much for coming back every single week. If you don't come back, I don't know what's wrong with you. Hit the subscribe button, and we'll see you there. <laughs> we're, we're not going to see them there. You. We're not going <laughs> to see you. You will hear us, and we will be here. All right. So, question of the week. I should have did this off the top, but I didn't. So, if you're this far, we know you're a real <laughs> fan. What's your favorite comic strip from when you were a kid? Or when, even now, I guess doesn't have to be when you're a kid. But I don't get newspapers anymore. So I, don't, <laughs> I don't. I don't read strip. Um, but I think I always looked for the Garfields. I think that was yeah. my and Dilbert. I think yeah, was I was. Guy. I was a Calvin and Hobbes guy. <laughs> Die Hard. Oh, that's true. That's true. They were good. There's so many, right? Like I read oh, them yeah. all. You, re- but- <laughs> you read the whole page, you know, and it's like Calvin and Hobbes was first, or sometimes last, depending on the day. If I wanted to end it with like. Right, uh, the, the, you want to yeah, like savor it at the very right? end, yeah. but yeah, you'd write, you'd read all of them, even the ones you hate. You're like, oh, it's like six words. How can I not read it? You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, guys, we'll see you next time right here at the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Take care. <laughs> this podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at Patreon.com/slash Geek Dad. 